You're listening to the Hockey Podcast Network, your home for hockey talk covering every team in the NHL. New episodes every Monday. Download at thehockeypodcastnetwork.com or wherever you get your podcasts from. Masters Weekend and DraftKings has you covered. This week, DraftKings is giving you a free shot at the $1 million top prize when you download and sign up using the promo code THPN. If you haven't tried DraftKings yet, this is the time. It's easy to play. You pick six golfers, stay under the salary cap, and submit your lineup before the tournament tees off early Thursday morning. Then you sit back and follow the action. The more red numbers they have on the leaderboard, the closer you'll be to winning some green. Rack up points for pars, birdies, finishing position, and more. Even though you may not be able to hit the course with the pros, DraftKings is giving you the chance to scratch your competitive itch and reign supreme. Download the DraftKings app now and use the promo code THPN during sign-up. This week, DraftKings is putting you in the action with a free shot at the $1 million top prize. That code is THPN, and you can get a free shot at the $1 million top prize. Only at DraftKings, minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the In the Dome podcast. 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 Okay. Newsflash. We still suck. We had the opportunity to change things up a bit. We had the opportunity to have Theo Fleury on with his business associate, uh, Eric Kusin. These guys have just joined the network. They're still looking to launch their first episode in the coming week or two. Um, all about mental health. You're going to hear a lot about what their what the intent behind their podcast is today. We got a chance to hear some great flame stories from Theo. Um, what else did you glean from that interview? Theo is great. Eric's story is really interesting too. If you don't know much about him, he is a former sports executive. He was the chief revenue officer with the Florida Panthers not too long ago. He worked for the Devils in their front office. He worked for the Phoenix Suns, has some NBA experience. And what happened was he ended up having to leave his pretty much dream job because he was struggling with his mental health and was going through some things. And he ended up starting this nonprofit charity called Same Here, the Global Mental Health Movement. So they've started a podcast on the network called We're All a Little Crazy alongside uh, Darren Ravel, who is a sports journalist, uh, business analyst as well. So the three of them starting that podcast that's going to be available on the network very soon. Um, really good stuff from both of them. So it was a good conversation. It was it was usually it was heavier than we, we usually get on here. Yep. Um, if you haven't read Theo's book, I am like when that first thing first came out, oh. I couldn't wait to read it. it it's it's fascinating just to see you know the amount of you know how dark that his path actually got um and then just to to hear a little bit about that in person today was pretty cool so sorry to um break in the the whole you know to have a break in the game recaps of us sucking here here's your game recap we suck 
to give you a little Theo Fleury action. Um, but but on the next podcast later in the week, we, we will get back to covering the past games that we've sucked. So until then, enjoy this talk with Theo Fleury and Eric Cousin. Flurry gets it again. That's the shot by scores! And listen to the fans! Flurry puts on the break, shoots, scores! Center, here's Flurry, stealing it, coming in! Flurry scores! Flurry has done it again with a great effort, turning on the Jets and beating Richter. Ran on in front again, Flurry scores! And so it comes down to this. Score tied, last man in the shootout, and the game resting on Theo Flurry's stick after being selected by Brent Sutter to be the Flames' third shooter. We've seen him do it before, we'll see if he can do it again. He moves straight into the net, the ball, he scores! Yeah, Theo Flurry has given the Flames the victory in a shootout, one to nothing. This may be the last time that we see Theo in a flame jersey. But what a finish. What an incredible finish. And the crowd going wild, serenading their longtime flame hero who comes back in glorious fashion. Here's Flurry looking for his first goal of the series. Scores! Flames are in seventh heaven. All right. Well, I, I thought it'd be good to start with Eric because I, I've been doing, I've been watching a lot of your interviews, reading up on you a little bit over the past few days, and you do have such an interesting story. So um, maybe for our listeners, kind of like, why don't you give us a bit of a background on where you come from, what your background is in pro sports. You've been an executive with different teams. How does a guy who's a, a highly ranked sports executive go uh, go about starting a uh, a mental health non nonprofit? Yeah, Theo and I joke whenever we're on these types of talks that you rewind five years ago for me, you know, a little over ten years ago for Theo. The last place we ever thought we'd be is in mental health advocacy, right? Yeah, you're not you're not thinking in this space, especially because the world wasn't thinking in this space either, and so. The cliff notes of my version is uh, of my story is, uh, you know, athlete growing up, then take that to the pro sports world, not on the ice the way the Theo did in the office. And so NBA league office, a number of NBA teams, a number of NHL teams, and the most recent of which was new ownership group purchases the, purchases the Panthers. I go down there to be their chief revenue officer. My life, if you ask me at that point, things are going in the direction I want. I'm a single guy moving to South Beach, right? You know, new team, new opportunity. What could be bad? And shit hits the fan for me six months in where my brain just sputs out like you wouldn't believe, like like almost having a computer where the wires are cut out of the back. And I spent two and a half years laying in a bed, staring at a ceiling, not watching TV, not listening to the radio, just dead to the world as these doctors try over 50 different psychotropic drugs on me, something called TMS therapy, where they shoot electromagnetic waves into your brain and then ultimately shock therapy. The scary part of which oh. was telling me that it was my last resort was shock therapy to get my brain shocked into seizures to try to essentially restart it. And um, where, where I actually ended up healing, because none of those things worked for me, was by learning 
through sharing my story with an integrative practitioner, it's a, a, a term Theo and I might both bring up again, someone who understands there's a mind-body connection that I had lived through this shitstorm of stuff with my older brother being sick for 20 years with cancer twice over a 10 year period and septic shock and comas and uh, his chemo treatments and breaking his femur bone and being in a body cast and his kidneys failing and needing a kidney transplant. And then three of my close friends passing away. So when you go through a lot of shit younger in life, and for me, it was between the ages of eight and 23, and then your crash happens at 35, you don't have a connection believing that what happened to you before is now coming to fruition now, right? So it took me a while to, to put the pieces together on that. And then when I realized, holy shit, this thing called life is what mental health is and the challenges we all face, um, albeit divorces, job loss, breakups, verbal abuse, sexual abuse, bullying, cyberbullying, uh, loss of loved ones, sickness of loved ones. That's really how Theo and I connected is that, you know, um, in wanting to form an organization because I saw our society talking about this topic in the wrong way. We were talking about it as one in five people with mental illness and depression, anxiety, PTSD, and that was it. We weren't talking about, about the common life events that we go through. To Theo's credit, I know he knows he's a pioneer, but, but where he's even more of a pioneer is by going through the shit that he did when he did He's not out there right now telling the story of, let me tell you about my PTSD that I'm dealing with. He's out there telling you about, let me tell you about what I went through in my life. What happened with Graham, right? What happened with uh, growing up and some of the, the challenges in my house and my father and my mother and family dynamics. These are the things that are common to everyone that now allows people to relate to this topic in a way that the even even in 2021, guys, the way the current celebrities you're talking about is not helping us. The, the message is not good. When they're focusing on disorder labels alone, what is that telling the 80% of the masses out there that aren't you know, labeled those things? So hopefully that background's helpful. That's why I formed this is to bring people like Theo and people with platforms together to say, we all go through it. Same here. There's no fucking difference from one person to the next. We're all human. Yeah, that's and, crazy. And Theo, I was reading an article. Uh, you were being interviewed by ESPN the other day. You you had a quote that really struck me as pertinent. You were talking about how there's layers to it, and the discourse currently is, yeah, let's talk about it. Let's get clicks. Let's get eyeballs. I thought that was a really interesting and pertinent perspective. Yeah, well, it's. <clears throat> I would say that ninety eight percent of the campaigns out there are only adding more to the stigma. They're not actually doing anything to create forward movement right and so um you know what COVID-19 has shown us is basically uh there's been more opioid overdoses and deaths and suicides than there actually been COVID deaths right so uh COVID is another layer of trauma that's all been added on to everybody else's already you know, layers of trauma, right? And so, and so nobody talks about trauma, right? Nobody talks about trauma. They, they get the, they get the, you know, that everybody struggles with mental illness and addiction, but they don't, they forget about the catalyst, which brings you into those two categories, which is trauma, right? right. And, uh, you know, after, after my abuser left my life, what did I start doing? I drank. And I started doing drugs because it was a coping mechanism to suppress 
the emotional pain and scars that were left behind from that experience. And that carried that, that carried on for shit, almost 27 years before I came to, the point where, you know, where I came to the point where I was like, you know what, I've tried everything on the planet. And the last thing I hadn't tried was uh, honesty, openness and willingness. That was the only thing I hadn't tried. And when I did, do the open, openness, honesty, and willingness, I became like the poster boy for sexual abuse because everybody who had had that experience was emailing me, private messaging me on, on social media. They were coming to my events and waiting till I was done speaking so that they could have the opportunity to approach me and tell me their story for the first time in their life. And so, you know, there's a certain amount of, you know, vulnerability, um, you know, that Eric and I have championed that it's the vulnerability piece that's going to get you out of, you know, uh, secrecy, hiding, pain, suffering, all of these things, right? Because, you know, when I told my story, that's what really changed everything for me and and realizing the significance and you know the epidemic proportions of trauma mental health and addiction in society is you know mind-blowing and we are seeing it now more than ever because you know uh they've taken community out of out of our uh everyday life They've taken relationship out of our life. We're isolated. We're alone. All these things are absolutely the worst thing for mental illness, you know? And so, uh, you know, when Eric called me the first time and, you know, uh, you know, for Eric, he was laying in bed for two and a half years, went to a breathing class and all of a sudden he's not laying in bed anymore. You know, I, I took a real holistic approach to my own mental illness, you know, got into spirituality and in, indigenous spirituality, started going to sweats and, you know, drumming, uh, you name it. And, and, you know, my mood and, you know, lack of hope became hopeful, right? And, and that's what we don't have. We don't have any hope. It's just fear mongering, fear mongering, fear mongering. You know, this is never going to end and all that. And so, you know, when when people lose lose hope, that's when they kill. That's when they, you know, uh, take their own lives. Is when look, we at what, look at what it's focused on. You know, I, I'm going to speak to the the hockey side of things because of the podcast we're on. Like, you guys in Calgary can tell me what it's like. I, I'm a fan, a hockey fan here in New York. And Theo played in, in in New York with the Rangers, obviously, right? So let's let's talk a little bit about that with, with with the context, Michael, of what you just asked Theo in terms of his question about you know are the right messages out there? Growing up in New York, we had you know the Just Say No program to drugs. So even with the things they try to help people with, all they did was try to explain to people the end of the spectrum of what happens okay, you should say no to these things. There was nothing in those programs telling us what people did leading up to how drug use happened. So there was no commonality in the struggles that we face. And so bringing this full circle with Theo's story, what, what, 
really endears me to him as a as an individual, as a human being, is there were certainly stories in the New York papers about, oh, Theo's an asshole, he's on the ice, he's giving people a hard time, right? He's, he, he's, he's getting in people's noses. Part of that was being a hard-ass player. But part of it is when you go through shit earlier in life and you don't know how to handle it because no one gives us a manual, right? At least up until this point, schools never taught us these things. And then we judge people based on the outcomes of what happens when they're turning to substances and finding other things to you know, dampen the emotional pain and suffering to then be judged based on behaviors. That's what we're doing. And, and what does the media do? When the media talks about a mental health outcome with someone, look at Kanye West, he's got bipolar, he's crazy, right? Or, you know, Britney Spears has depression, she shaves her head. So it was, you know, going back to the 90s, early 2000s with Theo, they're gonna, you know, latch onto that completely without giving context to, this guy was a victim of these ridiculous things that, that happened to him. And I think with the beautiful thing of this coming full circle is now for him to be able to tell a story in this way is, is, is helping and healing so many people. Yeah. Well, Theo, one of the main things that you, you know, just mentioned is the whole isolation thing. And I mean, when your book came out, I, I, I read that thing right away. Uh, I was just, I've always been kind of fascinated with this kind of stuff anyways. I know Michael's read it too, but you know, just even us as kids growing up as a flames fan, right? We idolized you and the other players and then watching you go through your career and then learning a lot afterwards, right? Of what you were going through at that time. Um, and I'm sure, you know, a big part of the reason why you guys are talking on, on your show about this stuff is there, there probably was no support for, you know, anybody like, like they had to go through what you went through, um, through, you know, the national hockey league. I'm sure that's maybe changing now, but, I'm sure a lot of that, you know, pain essentially that you're going through throughout all those years and on all the different teams, probably a lot of it's the isolation factor, right? Well, as soon as you stop putting butts in the seats, you're done. They don't care about you. You're, you're just, you're just an asset. You're a piece of meat, you're a commodity. And you know, when your time runs out, that's it. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and so, um, and, and everybody <clears throat> loves to see somebody who's very successful. They love to see them crash and burn. Everybody loves to see that, you know, and, and in my case, it was no different. And, uh, and it's amazing how much they love the comeback too. Right. So, yeah. you know, there's two, you know, there's two different ends of the spectrum, yeah. but, uh, you know, um, you know, there's this, there's this narrative out there that my addiction took me out of the game and that's complete, completely false. Uh, right about the last part of my first season in New York is when I started having issues with mental illness. So, you know, I was, I was, you know, having panic attacks and, I couldn't fucking sleep. And I was just like, what the hell is all this? And then, and then one night at Madison Square Garden, I'm standing on the top of the circle and I just fucking tip over. Right? Out of, out of the blue, I was looking at the clock and the clock went blurry and fuzzy. And I just went down. So I went into the dressing room and the doctor was waiting for me. And he said, like, what's going on? I go, I have no fucking idea. I go, I just fucking blacked out, like out, out of the blue. Right? 
So what does he do? Writes me a fucking script for these fucking pills called clonazepam, which which is like a very, very uh, high strength opioid, right? And so I was on those for, I don't even know, a year and a half and, and, uh, and all that. And so, you know, um, it was, uh, and then, you know, I was in Chicago, I should have never been in Chicago, you know, after we won the Olympics in 2002, I should have just retired because I had no desire to play anymore. I'd accomplished everything I needed to accomplish in the game. I hated practice. I didn't like working out, none of that stuff. You know, I still enjoyed playing the game because, you know, I, I was, I'm a very competitive guy. So I, I loved it, you know, the competing part, but all the other bullshit, you know, like I don't need to be, you know, uh, doing bull in the ring, you know, after practice with fucking these young guys, you know, or battling in the corners, you know, uh, after practice, you know, I was like, I was so done with all that, all that bullshit. And, yeah. uh, you know, if you play for the Sutters by, by February, you don't even want to be at the rink because they've sucked absolutely every last ounce of energy mentally out of you. You know, like I remember playing for Brian in Calgary and you'd walk into the dressing room at 8 30 in the morning for the morning skate and he'd be fucking standing there like just frothing at the mouth and just like and he'd come up to you and he'd fucking drill you in the arm and he'd go are you fucking ready and i'm like what time is it <laughs> like he's like it's 8 45 i go what time's the game start he says seven i go i'll be fucking ready at seven but not not right fucking now i said i'm just fucking wiping the sleep out of my eyes you know and uh but uh you know and then i had all those you know the pierre pages and the dave kings of the world were fucking we were blind from watching fucking video like it was just ridiculous how much video we watched and you know all that stuff and i wasn't that kind of guy i just wasn't that kind of guy throw a puck out on the ice i'll give you absolutely everything i got but all that other bullshit no that wasn't for me yeah, well, interesting you bring up the the center thing so early. I mean, we, that was one of the things we wanted to ask you. Um, I, I'm not sure how much you follow the team now, but I I, I think you keep some tabs. Obviously, you know Daryl's the coach. What's what's your take on on the new coaching hire? What do you, you think it's going to be good or bad for the team? Well, <laughs> as you can see, uh, it's not going very well, right? No. Well, they've lost seven of their last eight. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that team has not responded to any kind of coach. You know, they've had yeah. players, coaches, they've had hard asses, they've had, they've had, you name it, they've had it. And, uh, you know, that core group has had, you know, nine lives. And they just burned out their ninth live because, uh, you know, and it's frustrating to watch. It is, yeah. Um, because they don't compete. They don't compete every night. They, they lose more one-on-one battles than any team that I've ever watched play, you know? And, uh, you know, as a, as a guy who has a flaming sea tattooed on his chest, you know, it's, it's hard to, uh, to watch, but, you know, the game has changed so much, you know, 
you you really got to kiss their asses to get get them to play. And in our era, <laughs> you know, uh, if the coach had to do that to you, you'd be sitting in the press box for 15 or 20 games and getting bag skated every day after practice. So yeah, it'd be the other way around. You'd be kicking yeah, kissing his ass, right? Yeah. Exactly. So, but you know, just just look at the world where we are today and uh you know everything's about woke and cancel culture and and this is a you know this is a a formula for you know complete and utter wreckage of everything that uh, that i grew up with you know uh, uh respect is not even there's no more respect none none you know and uh you know it's sad to see because uh i believe as a human race we are 10 times better than this and uh you know um and uh you know i'm just thankful that i have something that keeps me busy every day and that's helping people uh you know who struggled with trauma, mental health and addiction issues, because I don't know if I didn't have this man, I'd be, I'd be in a really bad place too, I think. Right. Yeah. I mean, looking at, looking at kind of your, your career as a whole, like I mentioned, well, we all kept really close tabs on you in, in Calgary. And then, I mean, you became his fan favorite. So for so many people that, that just continued on to Colorado and, and New York, you kind of touched on it. It seemed like things, even from an outside perspective, started to escalate when you got to New York um, I, and then obviously reading your book, it, it sounds like that's what happened. But um, do you think there was a big difference just between the environments that you're exposed to in Calgary and New York that kind of led to that? It almost seemed like the perfect storm. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you know, I grew up in a low rental home. Okay. Like yeah. our house was 900 square feet. I shared a bedroom with my two brothers. So I go to New York, they give me $28 million and they basically drop me in the middle of Manhattan and, you know, go have fun. And for a guy like me, you know, uh, once you get three blocks away from Madison Square Garden, you are nobody. You are nobody. So for a guy like me who, uh, you know, needed, uh, you know, some sort of outside distraction, <laughs> you know, there's no yeah. better place on the planet, you know, than New York, you know, and, uh, um, and yeah, you know, uh, I tried to take a bite out of the big apple and it took a big, huge one out of me, but, uh, um, you know, New York is an amazing city. The New York Rangers are by far the best organization I've ever played for. Uh, we were treated like kings. It was unbelievable. Um, uh, playing at Madison Square Garden 41 times a year was an event, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, I just wish things would have worked out better. But unfortunately, I spent three years fishing the puck out of Mike Richter's net, handing <laughs> it to the referee because we were awful defensively. And if we could have played a little bit better defensively, I think we would have, you know, there was, I think it was the last year we had, we had all the, 
the uh, pieces to the puzzle. And we probably, like I said, if we could have played better defensively, we might have we might have won a Stanley Cup that year. But you know, things just kind of imploded uh, at the end of the year, and uh, yeah, it was unfortunate. It's funny you played pretty like roughly fifteen seasons, and the last one outside of Chicago, the last season in New York, is when you had your highest pims total of, the, of your career. So it's not like you were slowing down by any metrics. No. No. No, but my, you know, obviously my, my unresolved trauma, uh, you know, turned into anger and rage. And, you know, if somebody looked at me sideways on the ice, I, you know, I lost, I lost my shit. And I I often see a lot of the YouTube stuff uh, of that season in New York, especially towards the end. I just cringe, you know, thinking, oh my God, like you were out of control. I, I, yeah. I think I got kicked out of six games in a row at one time, like six games in a row. And uh, yeah, it was crazy. So I've been watching him guys, you know, like just to add some color to that, knowing what I know now about how mental health impacts performance, isn't it amazing. Like you were just mentioning, you know, his last season uh, with the Rangers and, and his point totals his ability to produce, even given all that he was, you know, handling at the time. And, and when Theo's saying, you know, sometimes we're just, not sometimes, he's saying most of the time we were just used as, can you fill fill the seats? I think the interesting thing about, you know, health in general, and, and this, this is a hockey player, but it's anyone, right? Like when you are supremely talented at something, you're... 60%, your 70%, your 75% is still better than most people's 100%, right? So you're able to produce at this ridiculous level. People don't ask questions necessarily, right? It's like Theo, the story that he's given here about looking at the center circle and the, and the scoreboard uh, spinning and him falling on his face, he doesn't get even that help. He's saying probably wasn't the right help, but he doesn't even get the help of the clonazepam unless he speaks up and says something at that point, because they're seeing this guy who's producing at a high level. Right. And so right. I think looking at athletes generally in the context of their producing, like the, in my world, starting in the NBA, the guy that comes to mind and Theo was around your time of being a player, but the guy Sean Kemp, right? Because if you remember him, he played in Seattle and I always compare him to Michael Jordan because it's like, both guys had the type of abilities that they could jump through the roof, like in a video game type of athleticism. Why was Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan, and Sean Kemp, Sean Kemp? Well, what's the baggage that they're bringing along with them? What, what are they, what are they carrying? What are they having to deal with? And what are they not dealing with because their talent just takes them through it. And so for Theo to have the career that he did, given that he went through what he went through as a child and never shared it with anyone is pretty spectacular. Not to talk you up too much, Theo, but. <laughs> But, you know, hockey was my happy place. So as soon as I was in that environment, you know, everything just kind of seemed to, you know, got pushed kind of to the side burner, you know, and I was able to, you know, with, uh, you know, like I don't think people realize how much talent I had, like just pure natural ability and talent because that's, ultimately what carried me through you know those 15 seasons was uh and and a lot of people say well you know I read your book and you know how the hell did you do it and I'm like I don't know I just did it and and I look back on 
uh, all that, you know, extracurricular activity I did off the ice. It was just pure talent and ability, you know, that no matter what shape I was in, uh, as soon as I put on the uniform, as soon as they dropped the puck, you know, I was able to, to navigate and figure out how to wait, uh, how to be successful, you know? Well, yeah. you look at those teams you were playing on with the Flames, like post-Stanley Cup, they're dismantling. McInnes is gone. Gilmore's gone. Roberts is gone. You're still there pretty much single-handedly, like carrying that team on your back. Like, I, I, I believe in the 95 playoffs, you had like 14 points in a seven-game playoff series. Yeah. And like, did you start building up any resentment or anything at all during those years when it's like, I'm doing everything here. What's going on? You're, you're treating everybody. I'm the only one. I never get any credit for that at all. Nobody ever talks about that because I didn't complain. Right. Like I wasn't saying in the paper, like, why the fuck are we going out and signing some free agents and giving me some help? I didn't say anything. I just fucking played, you know? And I would, I would, I would get dressed every night, putting on my skates during those, you know, whatever, from 96 to like 98 or whatever, I'm like, we have no fucking chance to win at all. The only chance we have is a 0-0 tie and I whip one in in the last five minutes of the game. That's the only way we have a chance to win. But, you know, Iggy was a young guy, Derek Morris, Kale House. Like, we had lots of young guys that were really great kids. Like, and so it was fun you know, being around them and, and uh, watching them experience, you know, their first, you know, first full season, second season, whatever. But, uh, you know, and then, you know, and then I went, when I went to Colorado and I walked in the dressing room and I was just like, holy fuck, like this yeah. is complete night, night and day. Like it was, it was almost like walking into, you know, the dressing room at an all-star game, you know, Patrick right. Milan Hayden, Chris Drury, Claude Lemieux, Patrick Waugh, Adam Foote. Like, it was just, it was nuts, you know? And uh, I'll never forget the the first game I played in Colorado. We played against Edmonton in Colorado. And they were actually beating us. And so Bob Hartley put me, Joe Sackick, and Peter Forsberg on the line, Okay. And we had the puck for two full minutes, full two minutes, like just zipping it around. And, and the last play, the puck went across to Sandus Ozelinch and he threw it to the back door. And I literally could have skated the puck, put it over the goal line, pulled it back up, grabbed the puck and threw it to the referee. That's how wide open I was at the end of the two minutes. <laughs> That's awesome. It was, that was a stacked team, dude. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. We I don't know how we lost. You lost to Dallas in the West Final, I remember. Yeah. Because <laughs> you basically spent seven games skating through fucking Velcro in the neutral zone. Right. You know? The Ken Hitchcock special. Holding. Yeah, it was awful. Yeah, no kidding, right? Yeah. Darian Hatcher two handing you oh. over the pack. You know, yeah, it was fun. <laughs> And then I'm just, I'm just curious, like you did mention, like you're starting to hate the game and and whatnot. What kind of brought you back in? Like you, you ended up uh, being invited to camp or you tried out for the flames in 09 was what, what was the reason behind that? You just wanted to 
give it one last go? Were you like itching to get back into it? <laughs> no. Uh, I was 235 pounds in February. Okay. And uh, my ex-wife now Jen was sitting at the kitchen table and I sat down beside her and I said to her, I said, I think I'm going to make a comeback. She's like looking at me like, you mean a comeback? I'm going to try and play in the NHL. So anyways, I call Gary Bettman and say, you know, I'm thinking about making a comeback, uh, but I know I have to go through, you know, the reinstatement process. Uh, and I'd been sober three years at that point. And basically he said like one sentence, call the doctors. And then he hung up. So I called the doctors, told them of my intention. And they said, okay, no problem. So then I went out and I hired uh, a strength and conditioning coach, a nutritionist, all, all these people. Right. And I trained for nine months. Okay. And about three weeks before I got reinstated, I was sitting at home one night and Daryl Sutter called me and said, uh, you know, what's happening with, you know, the reinstatement. I said, I don't know what's, I said, I don't know if they're going to reinstate me or whatever. And he says, well, if you do get reinstated, we would love for you to come to camp. Right. And yeah. I had, I had not called anybody to, you know, whatever. So. Cause this was I, what, six or seven years since you had retired, right? Six years. Yeah. Six years. So the night before training camp starts, Gary Bettman and uh, Bill Daly are in Phoenix dealing with the fucking shit show in Phoenix. Right. So Gary says, can you fly to Phoenix so we can have a face-to-face -face meeting. So I show up in Phoenix, uh, him and Bill Daly are at some hotel. So I take a cab from the airport to the hotel. The meeting lasts maybe 20 minutes. He says, you know, we love everything you've done. You know, you've done a great job. You're reinstated. So I left the hotel. I managed to get the last flight from Phoenix to Calgary home. And as I was getting on the plane, I called Daryl and I said, I'll be at training camp in the morning. And so I flew home, went to bed, woke up, uh, uh, went down to the saddle dome and uh, did my fitness test, right? And what was interesting was when I started doing the fitness test, like there was nobody around, right? So I do like the first three things of the fitness test and I'm like pumping out huge numbers. Right. So all of a sudden fucking all the brass is there. The coaches are there. You know, everybody's watching me fitness test. And so out of the 52 guys that were at training camp that year, kids that were half my age, I finished, finished 11th in the fitness test. Right. Cause I knew that if I didn't come back, like, and everything was, had to be like perfect, you know, they would look at me as some kind of sideshow. Right. And then, uh, and then, yeah. And then got to play in that, that first game at the dome and, and, 
what was really weird is how that whole fucking game played out. Like yeah. if you were sitting down to write a Hollywood script, they would throw it out. Oh yeah. That was awesome. I can't remember if they, it was either us or them that were leading and then the other team came back. So now it's overtime. And in overtime, we get a power play. And so they send out Jokinen and Aginla and Fanuf and somebody else. And right at the end of the game, Jokinen shoots the puck in the net. And instead of the red light coming on, the green light comes on. They ran out of time. So sets the stage for the shootout, right? Yeah. So Brent Sutter was coaching and I'm sitting on the bench and I get fucking kicked in the back of my ass. And I look back and it's him. And he's like, you're going to shoot second. I was like, okay. So the first two guys go in, they miss, right? So sets the stage for this, you know, this. uh... So I jump over the boards and I fucking start laughing. Because I'm like, how is this fucking happening? Right? This isn't, this isn't real. So after I, I laugh at myself, then I say to myself, well, I got to fucking score now. Right? Like I have to score. Right? And I'm a shooter on breakaways. I've always shot on breakaways, always. So that was my plan going in on the shootout. So I pick up the puck, you know, and I look up. First time I look up, the goalie's already in the spot where I'm going to shoot, right? So I have to fucking improvise, and I don't improvise until I get right on top of him. So I fake the shot. The goalie goes down, which is perfect. And then I just go like this, pull it, and then I go around him. And, uh, you know, the puck goes in the net and the fucking place goes fucking bananas, right? (laughs) And, uh, you know, they probably could have just opened the Zamboni gate and I could have jumped in my car and went home and I would have been, that would have been, that would have been But what was really interesting was I got home after the game and I start, like, I went on social media and, like, it was unbelievable. Like the stuff that people, like even my wife, who'd never even watched me play a game in the NHL, my ex-wife, said to me, she's like, do you realize that there were grown men crying in the stands when that buck went in the net? And I was like, no, I, I had no idea what was going on. But uh, but it was, a, you know, it was a great run. And, uh, um, and I remember the day that I got let go because I called – uh, I called Jen and I said to her, I said, I got released. And you know what she said to me? She says, why don't you just go three hours up north to Edmonton? She goes, they'll take you in a second. <laughs> <laughs> Did you even uh, think about should, doing that? Did that even cross your you mind? I should have, yes. You totally should have. Thinking back have, now. Yeah. Thing back now, I should. Have, but. Well, dude, I remember being pissed that you like I. The team sucked pretty much that year. I remember they were so slow. They needed speed. They needed skill. Ugh. I I was pissed when you when they. Played. I still remember that goal. I remember you celebrating the corner, and at that moment, I'm sure a lot like most Flames fans are like, "This is it. We're getting Theo back." <laughs> yeah, I mean, every all the fans wanted you back, so I don't know what the big deal was, but. 
I know um, I had they, four points in three games. I was playing five minutes a night, maybe. I didn't get any power play time, yeah. didn't kill any penalties or nothing. And I'm like, you know, just keep me around for the shootout. Like, that's my fucking specialty is the shootout. I never miss breakaways, ever. Shootout, power play? Yeah. Did they give you a reason or they just said you're cut? Yeah, they wanted me to be in the top six. And I said, listen, pal, I haven't played a fucking game in six years and you want me to be in the top six? I said, give me like a month to like get my bearings and, you know, uh, you know, work on like I I knew I'd lost a step, but my mind was my mind yep. was sharp, you know. And the game had changed so much in six years, like it had changed a lot. And it yeah. was very, uh, it was a really structured game, right? So it was easy to play. Like it was so easy to play because, you know, as a winger, it's easy to play in that kind of system because you, you know, you don't expend a whole lot of energy, right? You know, and every coach around that time was coaching for a zero zero tie and you get a scoring chance in the last minute. Like that's how they coached back then. So it was, it was really easy to play, but you know, they wanted me, me to be in the top six. And I guess my four points in three games, you know, wasn't good enough. So. Well, I mean, I no disrespect to Nigel Dawes because he's a fine hockey player, but I think you would have been a better uh, top six player than Nigel Dawes. Yes. So. yes. <laughs> and could you imagine, you know, well, maybe even earlier in your career, but being able to play without all the hooking and holding and all that, oh. like you, you would have went off. Yeah. Do you have any? I would have scored a hundred goals. Yeah, no, probably. Red line, totally. no red line, no hooking, and holding. Oh, yeah. Well, well, dude, I've been watching. I've watched some of your highlights over the year, and it's like it's un, it's unbelievable. Like pretty much every highlight I see of you, your teeth are all knocked out. You're all bloody. You just got high stick. You just got whacked. It's it's insane. <laughs> you should see me in the oh, yeah. trying to get out of bed after all that bullshit. <laughs> no shit, eh? <laughs> Oh man. Yeah. But it was, you know, it was a blast, you know, uh, the, you know, the first part of, you know, the, you know, the Stanley cup. And then, you know, those four or five years after, after we won the cup, it was, it was a lot of fun to be in Calgary. It was a lot of fun to be with the organization. There was so much talent and, you know, so many great players and, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun. I'm I'm kind of curious, maybe like a two part question, but we we've been curious. I mean, there's been a number of flame, uh, flames numbers that we think should be retired that haven't. Um, what, what's your take on the whole you know, <laughs> not having your number retired, not part of the forever of flame, this and that? I'm, Is there just, any... I'm just an average NHL player. That's all. Just average, you know. Yeah, pretty much it. Points, average <laughs> player, you know. Yeah. So. Well, even the Hall of Fame shit, like. It's ridiculous yeah. at this point, to, to be perfectly honest. Um, again, thousand points, like it's it's unbelievable. And I mean, well, here's my argument for the hockey all thing. So there was four best on best tournaments in the nineties. Okay, ninety one Canada Cup, ninety six World Cup of Hockey, ninety eight Olympics, and two thousand two Olympic Games. Guess who was on all four of those teams? Me, Mike. Drop. See you later. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. So. Yep. And there's 15 guys, 15 guys who averaged a point a game in the regular season, a point a game in the playoffs. 14 of them are in the Hockey Hall of Fame. 
who's the guy that's not in there? Me. So, you know, I, I don't know, you know. And, and what I, I can talk about, you know, from the standpoint of someone who, you know, spent their career dealing with the executives, dealing with the media types, hearing the behind the scenes stuff, you know, where we were at 10 years ago, five years ago, even in terms of activities, behaviors of players that factored into whether or not decisions were being made about, you know, a team's hall of fame or a league's hall of fame. And I think the, the greater understanding we have now, you know, something I shared earlier, so not to belabor the point of what people go through earlier in life that then leads to behaviors, right? And, and certainly, you know, Theo would admit as you become an adult, you know, you're, you're responsible for your own healing, right? But I think what's interesting is a lot of people who get left out of Hall of Fames in any sport, you know, it's, it's oh, strained relationships or things that happen between them and the media or them and brass and stuff like that. But it, it usually is, well, that was the relationship and then you don't hear anything else and then they have to make a decision whether or not based on that, you know, the, the, the way that that person was in their playing days and in their prime, are we going to let that person in? In Theo's case, he's educating the world after the fact of what he lived through and how the rest of society needs to be looking at this topic, not for himself, but for everybody else. So that, you know, the Robin Leonard's of the world don't have to deal with what he's dealing with. And Robin's just one example, because I think it's every player in the league. It's just at the different levels. And so he's using his platform to show people and has come back around to now use his platform to not just show, but to help people. What more could you want if you're an executive making those decisions? Then back to Theo's point about people do love a train wreck, but they love a comeback. Theo's comeback has been in life. Right. And that's an even more important comeback than a comeback in sports. And so to keep him out, you know, based on strained relationships or based on things that they think he did when he was a player, have some global perspective and look at the bigger picture here. There's just it, it's short sighted, in my opinion. Yeah, and, and I was sexually abused in the game. Right. In the game. In yeah. the game. Right. So. Yeah. It just, well, I mean, yeah. You know, it, it, it doesn't look good on them. That's all I can say. It doesn't look good on them. You know, you know this last, this, this last, uh, um, they just caught another coach. Um, oh, what the hell is his name? I forgot. Was it the guy in Detroit or something? Like a college guy or something? No, football the guy, guy that was coaching in Fort Francis, Ontario. Oh. You know? And... You know, so I called Tom Rennie and I was like, hey, Tom, I just got a call from these people in Fort Francis, Ontario, who say they have a coach who's, you know, been abusing kids for 40 years. I go, how the hell is this guy still coaching? How has this guy slipped through the cracks, you know? And and they're calling me first. They're not calling Hockey Canada. Exactly, they're calling yeah. me. They're calling yeah. me first to deal with this, with this situation. So, you know, I don't know. Uh, I just, um, you know, one, why don't you tell him, Eric, what you asked me on the phone the very first time we had a conversation? Yeah. So, you know, I, I told you the reason why I reached out to Theo first of any athlete that was out there because of the way he was sharing his story and, and he was very kind and being willing to, to, to give me some time. And so Dawn, his assistant, set some time up for us. We get on conference call. And I remember asking him, like, I guess it was ballsy me asking him this because I, you know, who had the right to, to bring something like this up? I said, 
you know, feel, I want to make sure I'm working with the right person to, to start building this alliance as a partner. Um, would you give up your favorite NHL goal to save someone's life? And he said, without hesitation, and certainly the first time I believe he's ever been asked that question, he could confirm this, but he said, I'd give up my Stanley Cup ring and my Olympic gold medal just to change one person's life. I played hockey not to be a superstar and to, to get all these accolades. I believe I was put on the surf to play hockey because it gave me a platform to now be able to do what my real meaning is to help people. And so again, you look at your decision maker with the flames, your decision maker with the hockey hall of fame, and you hear that and you see the work that he's doing. And now you're not coming full circle with the numbers that he's got. It's just, it's, it's mind boggling. Yeah. And maybe it's just a matter of time. I mean, it seems like every, you know, minority group is getting their turn, you know, so maybe, you know, <laughs> maybe a sexual abuse survivors from the game eventually get theirs. But um, I, I guess one more question I want to ask you maybe related to that is when you're going through each one of these organizations, and I know that, you know, you probably did, like you said, you didn't really tell, get to tell your story till after the fact, right. To, through your career, but Obviously, the organizations know something's up with Theo. Um, I'm just kind of curious, how much support did you find um, from organization to organization? And I guess it really escalated later on. So maybe, um, you know, there's a difference in, in what was noticeable. But how would you just kind of treat maybe the league as a whole and the organizations, you know, individually in terms of how much support you felt like you had? There was tons of support. Coatsy, when Coatsy was a GM in Calgary, he called me aside a few times and just said, hey, man, I've been hearing some stories about you being out on the town. He's like, you know, do you, do you want some help? And I said, no, I'm okay. I went to New York, Slats, Glenn Sather did the same thing. Um, when I went to Chicago, they knew, uh, they knew my history that we actually hired, they hired a guy to travel with me and everything. And, you know, I just wasn't ready for the help. You know, and that's ultimately, uh, I would say the majority of people that reach out to me are moms, dads, grandpas, grandmas, aunts, uncles, who has a kid going down the wrong path. <clears throat> and, you know, I automatically, you know, email them back or respond to them on social media by saying, does this person really want help? Right. Because if they don't want help, there's nothing you can do to help them, right? And everybody in my life knew that I was going down the wrong road, right? And the only one, the last person to see their lives going down the drain is guess who? Yours truly. And it wasn't until, um, you know, I left the game because I still had a year left on my contract in Chicago. And I just didn't show up. I didn't show up for the last year of that contract. I didn't call the Blackhawks. I didn't call my agent. I didn't call. I didn't. I just disappeared from the game because I I knew that if I went back, it was just going to be more of a shit show than it was the year before. Right. And so I just I just left the game, and then, you know, I think it was like six months later, the whole gun incident happened in the desert. You know, when I had the gun in my mouth, but I really believe that that was the turning point because I realized that I actually wanted to live 
And I needed to change a whole bunch of things about my life if I was going to continue to live on this planet. And the first thing was, you know, obviously to get sober, uh, which I was able to do. And then, you know, and then everything just started to fall into place, you know, and, and then the book happened and, and, and that, you know, the book really took me in a completely different direction, right? Because when I left the game, you know, I didn't have a degree from Cornell, uh, you know, when I left the game, like Eric does, you know, all I had was a grade 12 diploma from Vanier Collegiate in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, you know, I had more than half my life left to live and I didn't have a plan B, C, D, E, F, G, I didn't have a plan. And, uh, you know, the book, you know, completely changed that plan. And what happened was, is I, I really stepped into my true purpose in life. And that was to, you know, to be an advocate and, and to help people who, you know, had similar experiences as myself to, you know, find healing and recovery and all, all those amazing things that have happened, you know, since I left the game. But I wasn't ready for help. I wasn't you, ready. You, you, you say you weren't ready for help. A little bit of that is society's failure still to this point this day of normalizing what even it means to ask for help. And, and I'll use Robin as an example. We did an event, guys, with Robin a little over a year ago when Robin started working with us. And someone in the crowd, after Robin shared his story, said, Robin, do you think you're one of the few guys who deals with stuff or are you just one of the first few guys that's open? And Robin goes, oh, you mean the player who taps his stick on the corner and left corner locker seven times, always seven times before he leaves and go out on the ice that the coach calls a routine? Yeah, that has nothing to do with OCD. And the <laughs> guy who comes up from the minors who, you know, was just killing in the minors and scored 30 goals in his last 15 games, and he comes up in the first 10 with us, he shits the bed and he can't score at all, and they just call that jitters. Yeah, that's not performance anxiety at all, right? And so the normalization of, like, even the, you know, Theo was talking earlier about the, the, the taglines and how they just don't fit. Like, we're telling people it's okay to ask for help. It's a strength to ask for help. The only way we actually get people normalized and ask for help is by showing everyone that we all fucking go through things and all need help at different times. If you just try to like individually say, you're strong for getting help and in a vacuum like that, then it takes the Robins or the Theos of the world who have strength later. But like, we're, we're still, at so, we're patting ourselves on the back as a society that we've gotten to such a, a great place. We haven't yet because people aren't being vulnerable and sharing the everyday shit that we all go through. These players who get on the ice and play in front of 18, 20,000 people and then millions on TV, even though they look like robots out there and they're able to perform, they're performing because of what Theo said, because they're supremely talented. That's why they're performing. It doesn't mean there's not shit circling around in their head. It doesn't mean they're not fearful that they just had a fight with their wife or that their kid is sick or that their, their, their parent is, is stage four terminal in something. These are the things we need to normalize because if not, we're going to have more and more people. Look at what Theo is saying. He's saying even today, the brothers, the sisters, the mothers, the fathers are the ones that are calling me. And Theo has already been open about his story. And yet it's the family members who are having to ask. So unless we get it away from, wow, Theo's brave. Wow, Robin's brave. And we get it to, they're not brave. They were just the first ones to do it, right? And now everyone else is doing it. That's the only time this thing becomes normalized. Yeah. Is it, does it come back to like a, like a shame and embarrassment thing? Like, is that why, you know, we put it off for so long? 
Shame yeah. and judgment. Shame and judgment are the two yeah. biggest things. And then, you know, uh, I, I had a lot of resentment, right? Right. And I had to work through all the resentments as well, right? And like, that's, that's like a 10, 15, 20 year process of working through, you know, resentments, right? It's not like, it just doesn't happen overnight where you, you automatically, you know, forgive or, you know, whatever it is like, that's a long process that, that has to happen, right? Because most people who have trauma, their trauma happens in relationships. And most of those relationships are with who? Mom, dad, brother, sister, aunts, uncles, right? So it's a family thing, right? right? And, you know, families are really good at hiding secrets, right? You know, little towns are great at hiding secrets, right? And then when you expose the secret, then everybody has to look at their own shit, which they're not prepared to do, right? So then everybody's, you know, then then it develops clicks within the family and they push you out because you're the one who brought all of this stuff that they have to look at that they thought they'd never have to look at in their whole entire life, right? Yeah. So there's that whole shitstorm of, you know, and when you're when you're a high level performer like Theo was, but but it you know the reason I was talking with you guys before about the topic's not just about hockey or sports, about anything. So take any high level performer, right? Accountant, doctor, you know, like a, a store shop owner, like people who just are ambitious and want to be the best at what they do. One of the reasons I know, I know you asked Theo is it shame? Yes, shame is a big piece of it, but another big piece of it is. I've been able to white knuckle it and get through any challenge I've been able to get through in my life before. So why should this be any different, right? When a player was playing harder than me, I'm going to now kick their ass and play much harder back harder than they are. And I'm going to beat them. Right. Um, so, so part of it is also like this misconception that with our brain, we can outthink our brain and, and, yeah. and that is the, the recipe for disaster I can tell you that firsthand. Theo can tell you that firsthand. And it's not because like we're, we're not intelligent people. It's because when the brain's not working the right way, good luck trying to get it back that right way just by, you know, you know, pushing hard against it. You need skills, you need understanding, and you need the help of someone walking you through how to actually do it. Right. That's a great point. Cause I was reading your story and it's like, I couldn't get out of bed. And it's like, no matter how much you tell yourself, get out of bed, you're, you're not going to do it. We take for granted, Michael, you know, when we, when we get out of bed in the morning or our mind goes to, I got an email to send, or in your guy's case, we got a podcast to do today, right? Like those things come naturally, but let's look at the science of it. We have neurons firing in our brain. One neuron fires to the other and says, a thought needs to be created. Words need to be created when I talk to someone. When the neurons aren't firing or there's no, you know, software in the hardware, like the neurotransmitters to fire, I could know in my brain that I want to get up or that I should be getting up, but there's nothing in there making me do it. So people like, you have to get to that level of dysfunction to understand it sometimes. Um, but but you, you literally can sit there and just kind of stare off into space and your brain is not telling you to do anything. It's a, it's a paralyzing, debilitating feeling. Yeah. Well, I know you guys have been busy. Uh, that's the reason why you guys came, you know, have a show on the network now. Um, what did like, maybe we can wrap it up. 
like what, what advice do you guys have for people listening that need to take that next step? I know that that's probably what your podcast is all about. Um, nor like you keep on saying normalizing this, right? Because how else do you reduce the level of shame and whatnot that, that prevents people from getting better um, than, than that? Like what advice so do you guys have? And, you know, um, get, please feel kind of piggyback off me here, but like the format for a show like this, another thing I was sharing with the two of you, I think what's been tried in this space already is Theo and I and Darren have a guest on and the guest tells their story. That's an important part of normalization. Don't get me wrong, but it's not timely and it's not hard hitting and it doesn't get people to want to listen right now. So we're going to go down a little slightly different path for normalization by taking current event stories in sports, but in entertainment and pop culture in all aspects. So it could be a story like the free Britney campaign that's going on with Britney Spears. It could be a story like Robbins, right? It could be the story like the loss of the congressman who lost his son to suicide. And as those things are happening in real time, we're going to discuss in, in a push the envelope type of way and, 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 you know, be careful about, you know, not crossing the line, but getting close to that line of, Let's wake the F up as a society that we're not talking about this in the right way. When Vincent Jackson dies in his hotel room and he's 38 years old and he looks like this behemoth of a man and we find out nothing other than no foul play, guess what? That shrouded in mystery way that that story is released creates more confusion. It doesn't clear things up. It doesn't protect the family in that way. And then what happens is they go to the local police precinct and the police precinct says, well, he was arrested two times for DUIs in the last five years. And now all of a sudden he gets his label of alcoholic. So now because our society wants a single answer, it's like, oh, he died because he's an alcoholic. He probably drank himself to death because they're not telling us any more information. How is that helping us move forward? Right. We're not learning yeah. anything about this man's life, that he was the son of a military man who traveled around market to market and had to adjust into new markets as a young kid, which is traumatic on anyone and difficult. So we as a society can't relate to his story because if I'm not an addict and I don't abuse alcohol, that's not a story for me, as opposed to giving the whole history of everything that he's gone through. Give you one other example outside of sports. We have mass shootings in this country. Okay. This might be a controversial take, but Theo and I talk about this a lot. Every time there's a mass shooting and I'm, I'm a director or a, or a CEO of a nonprofit. So I'm in the shoes of someone who needs to come out and say something we have unilaterally, we have all these nonprofit leaders come out and say that shooting had nothing to do with mental health. Well, why are they saying that? Because they're being protective of a group of people in a mental illness category that they represent, and they don't want it to be seen as though if you're mentally ill, you're capable of this. Well, you can do both things at once. You could be responsible with your words and say 99.9% .9 of people who deal with mental health at the end of the continuum or mental illness, if we want to say it, are not going to take out a gun and not going to shoot up a group of people. But when we have mass shootings, we have to examine mental health's role in this. And what that enables us to do is put more message towards that, put more resources towards that. So our society actually is willing to look at that and not just turn the other way because it's a complicated topic and we don't understand it. We want a simple answer, right? So these are the types of topics we're going to dive into Think of it almost like a sports talk radio in real time meets mental health. So you'll, we'll have heated debates. We'll have interesting conversations about it. We'll have guests on who have, you know, uh, interesting takes and maybe controversial takes. But I think that's what it's going to be needed 
to get people to buy in. Because if we just do storytelling, it's going to, you know, that shake the trees on some people, but it's not enough to get the masses more interested. Theo, did I take anything there? Nope. And we have to change the narrative. Like, whatever messaging is not working, right? And, you know, I don't know if normalize is the right word, but, you know, like, for example, every mental health campaign starts with this tagline, one in five and one in four. Okay, so why are we shaming the one person who has mental illness? And then in the same sentence, we're telling the four out of five that they're okay. Okay, well, this is at like epidemic proportions. This is bigger than COVID will ever be. Okay, and so I've been in this space for almost 13 years. And what I know is it's five and five. It's all of us. And in order for us to get out of this space where people are taking their own lives, because that's ultimately, you know, the last straw and you're staring at two individuals who still have suicidal ideation, right? We still have that. I still have that. But what I've come to understand is it's part of having a depressed brain is that I'm going to have thoughts every once in a while and then it's normal having those kind of thoughts is normal it's not you're not crazy you're not anything right and so uh you know the more conversations we have with people who are on healing journeys so people you know like myself had a gun in my mouth eric couldn't get out of bed for two and a half years staring at a pill bottle going take the pills take the pills take them all take them all to this how do we get to this place where i can actually manage my life day to day and i have mental illness i have mental illness right and uh i don't think there's a cure it is based on my routine right and nobody talks about the routine like what's what's involved in the routine well there's 10,000 different modalities out there that have nothing to do with big pharma, right? Because big pharma owns mental health and we don't want them to own mental health anymore. We want people to use these 10,000 modalities, come up with the five or 10 best modalities that fit for you so that you can have peace, joy, happiness, and serenity. That's the ultimate goal for anybody who has, you know, mental health struggles is peace, joy, happiness, and serenity. That's what it's about. And so, you know, the podcast, you know, we're going to bring in practitioners and uh, functional medicine people and, you know, people who are doing medicine differently than what we're doing, because what we're doing is not working. It's not working. Right. And so, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of the podcast is to change the narrative, change the conversation, bring more people into the conversation, right? We want the five and five to come into this, into this uh, conversation and go, you know what? Yeah, I, I am struggling with depression. I am, you know, all these labels. And then here, here's the solution. And you get to pick what your solution is, you know?
and you guys know better. I'll, I'll, I'll end the part on the on the, the podcast about this. You know, Jordan and Michael, you guys know better how important long form is to people's perception. And so if Theo puts out a tweet, you're going to get the people who are like, Theo, stop being crazy with what you're saying, right? And Robin puts something out there, and, and I'm just using them as two examples because they're two people that we work closely with. And people will be like, oh, well, you know, Robin's a, an outlier. He's a, one of the only ones who deals with this. It takes long form. I don't know if you guys saw the, the press conference that Robin had where he finally just riffed on, you know, people when he had a concussion and, and, you know, today's NHL, they say upper body injury, lower body injury. They don't want people hunting for the areas that are, are susceptible. So the team says upper body injury and he comes out and says, no, it was a concussion. And let me tell you why I'm being open about a concussion because I had all these people saying, oh, he must have fallen back and need to go to rehab now. He needed that five minutes during that press conference when someone asked him, how often do you hear an athlete go off for five minutes and be able to like just just go on that long? It's usually like a 30-second answer, right? And it's a cliche. No, with no cliches. Right. Yeah. We need to dive into the real shit. And the only way we dive into the real shit is through this long form. And that's what I think this platform is going to give us the opportunity to do. And yes. And you know what what Eric's done with same here and we're all a little crazy is is we've created a safe space for people, you know, and and you know, we just want to build on 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 that piece because we're you know if I had a business card and and a job description, my job job description would be I collect people. That's my job. I collect people. That's, that's what I've been doing for 13 years. I've been collecting people. And once, once the light bulb goes off for them, they're part of your tribe and they never want out. They never want to leave. They just want to be a part of whatever it is we're doing. And we're collecting people. That's what we're doing. We're collecting people who have mental health struggles to get them to the point where the light bulb goes off for them and when the light bulb goes off amazing things happen right because for both of us the light bulb went off right it went off and i went holy shit there's a different way to do this i don't need drugs alcohol food sex gambling fucking all this other shit right there's other ways to do this and they're healthy and they're filled with meaningful relationships and great people and all this stuff. That, that's what it's all about. It's about relationship. This whole thing is about building relationship with society where, you know, this conversation needs to be normalized. And, and you know, the podcast is going to, you know, hopefully put a big dent in normalizing the conversation where you can talk about whatever you want. You're never going to be judged. You're never going to be ridiculed. You know, no fingers are going to be pointed at you. All you're going to get is love and support. That's it. You know, when people feel loved and supported and listened to and all that amazing things happen. Yeah. I think Eric with the, the whole long form, right. Is just being able to, to pull things back and look at the why, right. In terms of, I mean, you mentioned it, you know, the guy, the alcoholic in the room, but why, what drove him to that point. Right. And I think maybe Theo's, you know, a lot of similar, similar perspective from, from where you came from. 
anyways, guys, thanks a lot for coming on. Mikey, did you have any other any other points you wanted to touch no, on? No, that was great. Um, when's episode one coming, do you think? I know Rev- Darren Ravel's involved as well. He's a great guy, um, sports writer. Uh, so he's going to be a great addition. Um, he's, when do you guys... Yeah, yeah, totally. We've got a bunch of quirky personalities between the three of us. And, yeah. and you know, Darren's got different opinions in a public facing way. I'll say this Darren's opinions politically, because he puts them out there more and Theo puts them out there more. They don't necessarily see eye to eye on politics that that gets pushed aside when it comes to how do we come together around a topic like this? And it's thank shows God, that, by the way, that's, we need more of that. Holy shit. Right. Exactly. And I think that's going to be the beauty of this. So thank you for asking that question, Michael. Uh, looks like right now, uh, Friday of next week is going to be when the first epi- episode comes out. So we've got a promo episode, just a three minute riff between the three of us of, you know, some of the things that you're going to hear on it. And and the reason why we, I didn't have like a definitive date to start is back to the whole wanting it to be timely. If a, if a major story comes out between now and some point next week, we want to hone in on that, right? We don't want to just focus on something that was even two weeks ago. So, so look forward to people checking it out. And, and we really appreciate you guys having us on. This is, this has been a fun, fun hour plus. It's been awesome. I mean, Theo is a Titan in Calgary to say the least. And I mean, it's been great meeting you as well. So we really appreciate it guys. Yeah, no problem. It's, uh, Likewise guys. We'll, our we'll, pleasure we'll and talk to you more of these with you. And I've got an idea to throw at you just before you go. So you're a sports executive. I mean, Theo, you could follow in the steps of like Joe Sackick or Stevie Y. I mean, we need some, we need some management in Calgary, dude, maybe at some point you can throw a good team together. Just throwing it out there. I already offered my help and they declined it. So oh, <laughs> they would, eh? They I'm would. too smart. I'm too smart. But I was gonna say you're you've got way too good of ideas. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. First all thing, right. first thing I do is fire this the scouting staff, all of them. Fire them. <laughs> oh, we've done a horrible job of drafting. Face it, you know. We've done a bad job. Like I'm an Islander fan. It's hard to see teams moved away a little bit from Pat LaFontaine back in the day. If you guys remember him, I worked for the Devils, even though Marty's there, you don't see a ton of, you know, Stevens being invited back again, or Danico being taken from the play by play to actually doing stuff in the the front office. So unfortunately this happens a lot, you know, there's all the, all the propeller heads are all afraid of us old guys. (laughs) <laughs> actually played the game yeah. you know that's why they say stats are for losers <laughs> and it's true <laughs> awesome that's awesome all right that's guys sweet. thanks funny, guys funny bowl is dead see and theo i'm yeah. a huge <laughs> analytics guy so i'm definitely using that stats is for loser thing for as an intro in the show or something well, what stat did i fit in <laughs> none zero nothing <laughs> I'll go look up your expected goal rates later if I can find it or your course. Well, you, heard the, you heard the story about the draft, right? When they drafted me. Oh yeah. Al McNeil threw his pen across the fucking table and said, "Ah, oh, we draft another fucking jockey. Yeah. No, you just drafted your franchise fucking player. I was watching a thing with crisp though. Terry Chris, right before this, it was like from your rookie year and they were, they were speaking poetic about you. They were like, Oh, Theo's put up points everywhere. He's going to be awesome. Yeah. So Chris yeah. crispy knew what was up. Well, Crispy had me at the under 18 in uh Oh, that's right. Yeah, so he he already knew what I could do, so
Yeah. The rest I, of them. I love, I love watching the, uh, the the playback of Cherry trying to pronounce Theo's. He's got, I've got a new idol. His name is Theo Fury. <laughs> Fury. Tyson Fury. Fury. Yeah. Tyson Fury. Yeah. All right, boys. Sweet, boys. Thanks a lot. Okay. There you have it. Um, Hope you guys enjoyed that. Again, if you're, if, if this sort of topic speaks to you at all, keep an eye out. They're actually joining the hockey podcast network. Um, the show is going to be called we're all a little crazy uh, you heard what's what it's going to entail they're going to have guests on but more importantly going to be covering um, stories real-time stories throughout the world sports and, and otherwise yeah really good stuff how do you like uh how do you like theo's take on daryl yeah it's interesting i mean here's the thing right like with and we'll get into this in the next podcast of where we're at with Daryl. Um, I, I still am at a place where I'm going to give him till mid next season to, for me, he's got carte blanche, do whatever he wants. Uh, I, you know, the, the latest thing post game against TO last night, this is game one TO. Um, the very last thing he says, you know, when asked what Valimaki and stuff is that good's not okay. Right. The benchmark, he's basically saying the benchmark in this organization has been okay. Theo alluded to it. This group, I mean, you, pretty much every coach, without if they haven't said it directly, I remember Glenn Galson saying, like, this is a weird group, like, you know, with regards to having consistent performance. Um, I kind of, I, I had it in the queue to ask him, like, what about 18 19? But things just, just went in a different direction. But that's that's the biggest thing for us, right? Coming back to where does this group fit? What do they need? Like, if they have just have they've been so mediocre, right? For the last five six years, it'd be one thing. But when you throw in a regular season success like they had in eighteen nineteen, it just I don't know. It, it makes this whole thing much much more interesting and much more complex. I think. Yeah, and uh, we're definitely keeping the stats are for losers clip. And that's going to be part of the show now because um, I felt personally attacked by Theo. He pretty <laughs> much called out my whole existence. <laughs> so. so I don't know, like coming back to the Daryl thing, we, we've said this, right? That, that was been the knock on Daryl coming into this position from a lot of people. Is like, oh, he's too old school, blah, blah, blah. Players are different. I think everybody evolves. I think everybody grows with change. Listen, Daryl was the way he was because it was effective at that time. I think, you know, he matures as he grows, everybody evolves. So I don't think he's going to, I think he probably knows what's effective and what what's not. And look, we'll get more into depth in this in the next podcast, but where I'm at with Daryl right now, this is why I'm giving him carte blanche. It's like, I think there's a method to his madness, even though it's maddening, right? When you keep looking at all the things that Jeff Ward did, that just had us up in arms and, and he's doing the same thing um, with, with keeping with Richie on the lineup and, you know, taking the young guys out and putting stone in over Val Mackey and whatnot. I know a lot of people are arguing about it, but I still think that Daryl's probably just like Theo, right? He's much different person than he was. Daryl Sutter is probably a much different person than he was as the world changes. So does everybody else. So I still, and you know, I, we did an interesting poll on Twitter, close to 600 people for the, it's for the most part, the consensus I feel 
from that from that survey, you know, just rating on Daryl's performance in the first whatever 15 games so far, is that people think it's too early. He's been had, he walked into a mess. Now, obviously, look, they've lost seven of eight. The mess looks like it's the worst it's, it's been in five years. But I still think that potentially he's just doing this on purpose to expose um, all their all their biggest weaknesses, and it's part of the irony out process. That's the last thing I'm holding on to. But I still think you got to give him at least till mid next season to really to see what you have. Yeah, and it's not even it's it's you have to accept that he's going to be here for a while. Like that's kind of where I'm at. I'm like, God, these well, things that, yeah. are frustrating. But he's not going anywhere. So exactly. Wait. So for the next podcast, stay tuned. We'll have some more game breakdowns as well as maybe we'll have some news leading up closer to trade deadline, but we'll have some trade deadline preparations.